0: Welcome to Back from the Abyss, I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. A couple of items before we move into today's story. First, in light of some of the things I discussed two episodes ago in the 20 years of Psychiatry Insights and Pearls episode, I wanted to share with all of you a recent story about a session gone bad, and I got approval with a patient to discuss this case. And I think this story is interesting because it combines some of the elements I talked about in that 20-year episode, and I think you all might find this interesting. Basically, if you remember, I talked about some of the problems with video sessions, how we can unconsciously and unintentionally hurt our patients and clients, this ongoing necessity of constant self-examination, and also how our personal strengths can actually become weaknesses in the clinical setting. So basically what happened was this. I did a video session with this really sweet woman who I'd been seeing for depression and anxiety. It's about three months ago. And we've been trying to get her off benzos. And she's very physiologically and psychologically dependent. And she's really been struggling. And I said, well, let's do a family session with her husband. And she lives far away. And I said, let's just do it by video. So I'd never met her husband. So they pop on the screen. And you know, we have seemingly nice connection, and I kind of launched into the topic of how to get uh, her off benzos. What happened was, I think I had no, I know I had no idea how much dread and panic she was having. I mean, I could tell on the screen that she was nervous. She's very hesitant. um, And I was really pushing her and saying, you can do this. And, And, you know, I knew when we hung up from the video session that it hadn't gone well, but I didn't know how badly until she contacted me again a few weeks ago, and she admitted that she was just crushed at how I had treated her, that I hadn't heard her, that I hadn't read her fear. And as she and I talked, first of all, I thanked her profusely for reaching out to me because you know, empathic repairs are crucial for this work we do in psychotherapy. I realized a few things had happened. And, you know, number one thing I think is, you know, on video, and I talked about this in the 20-year Pearl episode, on video, yeah, you get words, and you can see people, but you miss their energy, you miss their chi, you miss kind of the psycho-spiritual energetic dimension. And I, I couldn't tell how far into dread and doom and panic she was. I, I could tell she was scared, but I just couldn't read her fear. And I know if I'd been sitting in the room with her, it would have been palpable. Um, another thing that happened was, I think... You know, we are all made up of different parts. And, you know, I have a therapist-psychiatrist part. But I also have a competitive runner part, and I also have a coach part because I've been a coach. And I think what happened in this meeting is <clears throat> I was getting a little frustrated, and so I sort of f- unconsciously flipped out of my therapist role into the competitive runner-slash-coach role. And I was really pushing her. Like, you can do this. Come on. Suck it up. And I, as I review the session, I think I was... <laughs> I was really treating her like an athlete who was tentative about a workout and knowing, you know, she can suffer more than she can ever imagine. And, and also myself as a competitive runner, knowing that, you know, when you start suffering, that's when you got to push harder. But all that did was serve to alienate her. And it, again, it was only in my conversation a couple weeks ago with her that I realized that, you know, with the disconnect of the video session, I had unknowingly kind of slipped into these other roles that were really toxic for her. So I think this case brings together so many interesting things. You know, one is empathic repair. I think she and I are starting to do the work to repair that. Um, Some of the problems with distance sessions, namely that you miss so much of the energetic uh, kind of psycho-spiritual aspect of of the session. You know, this idea of holding up the mirror that even when the last thing I wanted to do was hurt her. And in that session, I really hurt her. And I didn't mean to, but I just, again, unknowingly fell into these other ways of being that were super unempathic. So I want to apologize to her and want to thank her for letting me share this story. And I hope it can help some of you in the audience, whether you've been on the receiving end uh, of a psychotherapist's empathic failure or whether you're a therapist who has committed or will commit those. Second issue... um, I'm going, it's not issue, second, second announcement. I am planning to be in the San Francisco Bay Area in early June to record a couple stories. So anyone out there back from the Abyss listeners, any of you live near or in the Bay Area or going to be in the Bay Area early June and you possibly want to share your story, reach out to me through my website and we'll chat and see if that might be a good thing for you. All right, let's jump into the story. I've been going through the listener surveys and thank you so much all of you for filling those out. So helpful. And we've had multiple requests to do a story on adoption and also to delve further into early childhood attachment trauma. And so, voila, here it is. This is the first of a two-part series on adoption, attachment, and identity. Part one today is the story of Shea. She was adopted as a baby from South Korea and raised in Wichita, Kansas, in a family of Swedish descent. I found myself so moved as I witnessed her story, starting with her initial attachment wounds and subsequent heartbreak, then her shocking betrayal, and finally, the way her inner light and resilience guided her to where she is today, a mother, a business owner, an adoptee voice of strength and compassion. There's a lot of wisdom in this story, and I'm so excited for all of you to hear it.
1: I understand adoption to be a fundamental trauma, a disruption of time, place, and belonging in the world inflicted from separation from the nuclear family. To be excised from one's biological clan is a primal wound, no matter what happens afterwards.
0: That's so powerful. Yeah, that was the first thing you wrote when I, I emailed you. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we start from the beginning, from your birth and, and what unfolded in the years after that?
1: Well, um, I was born in 1970 in South Korea. And my, the first nine months of my life are based on what my adopted mom told me. And to be quite clear, I, I don't know if it's factual, but this story carried me through to this point, so I appreciate it. My birth mother kept me for nine months, which was a pretty tremendous feat at that time in that culture because of the taboo of being an unwed mother. So my understanding is she worked in the back of the dress shop, like she wasn't even able to work out in the front and interact with the public. Again, I don't know if this is true, but it lends itself to the idea that, you know, she was out in the open and yet still very hidden. So she did her best with little support. And at nine months, when I was nine months old, that's when she relinquished me for adoption. She took me to the orphanage herself, which is also um it's also another thing of note because it's it was quite common to you know abandon your baby, and in South Korea, they have uh, my understanding is they have um a very organized system actually, to facilitate that, where, you know. A mother can can leave her infant at, like, a fire station or, you know, a police station, and then they will take the child to the orphanage. And what's also remarkable about that is that I have my birth name. I have my birth date.
0: What was your birth name?
1: My birth name was Eun Jin Lee, Mm -hmm. E-U-N. And, um... And I'm probably not even pronouncing that right. It's difficult to say. And what is significant about that is there are many adoptees that I've heard about and heard their stories where, you know, the, the orphanage um, workers named them and, you know, had to guess their age. And so some people don't even have, you know, that basic information. So that was the biggest gift that my mother gave me was just that that one single route to her.
0: Mm-hmm. How long were you in the orphanage?
1: Well, it took nine months until I arrived here in the States. So within that nine-month interim period between relinquishment and when I arrived here, um, i I think... My records show that I had two different foster families. So there was a series of, you know, other relinquishments and attachments that were stunted. And, yeah. And this is, you know, my understanding is at nine months of age, that's that's a really critical time in human brain development. Because that's when the child understands I am separate from mom, but I'm okay if she leaves because she'll come back.
0: Mm So it seems like that's sort of the time period of trust versus mistrust, you know, where the baby is sort of knowing on a deeply unconscious but profound level, like is the world a safe, predictable, Mm -hmm. welcoming, nurturing place, or is it unpredictable and perhaps even unsafe and unnurturing?
1: Right. And so... Yeah, sadly my mother went away and she didn't come back. And then I was, you know, put in a series of different situations with people I did not know. And it informed my sense of self, my sense of safety and trust in relationships that, you know, it would take me decades to really unspool what that that infant, what my, what my infant self warehoused. So. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I'm getting there, but it takes a lot of time and a willingness to feel that sorrow, mm-hmm. to feel that grief. Mm-hmm. first concrete memory was when I was 18 months old and I arrived in the United States and I was on the the hip of my the escort who brought me you know who accompanied accompanied me across the flight and I remember very specific details like um As she was, you know, we had already deplaned, but we were on the, what do they call that, the skyway? The tarmac? The thing. Well, no, it's that, you know, the tunnel, like from the airplane Mm. into the terminal. And, you know, it's, it's quite dim and sort of a blue light. And I remember being on her hip and looking over her shoulder at her feet as they were kicking out behind her. And watching them get lighter and lighter and the light growing more golden in the, you know, the sounds getting very, you know, very overwhelming. It was very scary. And then I also remember going into a smaller room where there were still, I could hear a lot of people. You know, I buried my face in her neck. And, you know, the acoustics were muffled, but I knew that there were a lot of people, and suddenly it got very quiet, and I pulled my, you know, my face out of her her shoulder and turned around, and there were uh, many people in a semicircle, and everybody was looking at me. Mm-hmm. And I immediately, you know, put my head, my face, like back in her neck, and I heard people laugh. And of course, to them, it was this charming moment, and to me, it was terrifying.
0: Yeah. I mean, just the fact that you can remember something so young mm-hmm. to me suggests that this was profoundly. Oh, disturbing yeah. and traumatic because you know, most people don't remember their first few years but right this is so etched in your memory
1: mm-hmm. so and this this is the first time that i i had a, a sense of my adopted mother because i turned around and as i i turned around again and i remember feeling like angry that they laughed at me because you know and I remember scanning their faces and there was one woman in particular that uh, there was just something on her face and I don't know if it was just expectation or there was just something notable about it. And she started to come out of the crowd to me. And I remembered thinking, not her. Like, anybody but her. And it's funny how, you know, that energy, it, you know, it telegraphs beyond language and any of that stuff. And so basically the, you know, the handover was, uh, you know, a physical struggle because she came towards me, arms outstretched. She, I think she, in her mind, she had this vision that I would just like, you know, turn and leap into her arms and I, I didn't budge. And so she had her hands on me and she pulled and And everybody kind of laughed because I wasn't going anywhere. And she pulled again, and it quickly grew unfunny. And then, you know, then there was, like, the actual moment where she was absolutely tugging on me. I felt, you know, the conviction in her hands. Like, I knew... I knew that this I was supposed to go with this person I didn't want to go with her and I remember feeling this betrayal because my escort started peeling my fingers off of you know her shoulders and I just I remember that last moment when my fingertips slid off and it was just nothing but air and I thought I I'm I'm done for like in my mind it, it was I feel like it was yet another death like a symbolic death. And from that, the memory goes white. But I do have uh, memories over the next few days of parties and conversations. And I remember when I was growing up, my adopted mom would say, you don't remember all that. And Mm -hmm. I would give her details. (laughs) And she, you know, she would say, Oh, you know, these are things I could not have made up.
0: Mm -hmm. And interesting, again, that you're thinking of the nature of memory that you don't remember much of anything for a while thereafter I'm guessing you were in shock and shut down and kind of numb mode Mm -hmm. and yeah nothing going in the memory banks for a while.
1: Yeah yeah and I, I do think that when the psyche has that kind of trauma I think it just puts its nose down and just tries to get through it. The next memory of note was when I was three. And and to be honest with you, like I don't have any proof that it was three. I just it feels like it was at that time, the size, my understanding of the world. And there was one night in particular. Uh, my parents, obviously, they're um, white, you know, I was being raised in Wichita, Kansas, and my family, my dad's family especially were Swedish in origin. So there was no hiding that I was adopted. And I remember one night, all of a sudden, the enormity of it hit me, like how far I was from where I began. And I remember going into my parents' bedroom. My dad was getting ready for bed. My mom was already in bed. And I, I announced, I said, I'm, I'm ready to go back now.
0: And <laughs> I know oh, that's so sad I know and oh. and she
1: looked at me and she goes, Where? and I said well i I want to go back home I, I want to go back to my to my to my mother. And I remember she just kind of looked at me and she and I know that this was her discomfort and her pain, right? But she kind of laughed and she goes, Well, honey, that's you are home, and I am your mother and there's there's no going back and you know, talk about existential crisis at three, you know,
0: because you look at her and there's no pretending that you came from her. There's no pretending that you are of this family. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that again is one of the (laughs) reasons why I am. I lovingly call this being a control enthusiast. (laughs) (laughs) A dear friend of mine gave me that, (laughs) gave me that moniker a long time ago, and I've gladly adopted that. Um, And it's because, you know, I've always had that sense that decisions were made for me that were unsafe and, you know, didn't really have a full understanding or respect of who I am or what I wanted. And I realized, you know, as an infant, I was helpless Right, But I, I'm always struck by the sense of self and the sense of awareness that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of had to do what other people decided for me. Yeah.
0: Of why you were adopted, why your family went to Korea to get you, what were the dynamics involved with that?
1: Well, this is a difficult story, and I'm going to go ahead and tell it. And, you know, I I want to be I want to be very explicit and just stating I, I am estranged from my adopted family and and have been for some time. I did it with love. There was, it was not an easy childhood. And, you know, sadly, my my mother in particular, she sustained a lot of abuse that she never healed. And so much of it came out on me. So the story that I'm about to tell you, actually I was 19 at the time and it was Christmas Day. So it's with that understanding of, you know, it it was not a, a rosy picture so um yeah it was Christmas day and my mom would often you know big days like that she would often get kind of emotional and she had two tells that I always knew that something was up she would either pace or she would get really silent and you know kind of glower and seethe so uh We had left, like, the big celebration. It was just us, and I walked in, and she was sitting on the couch in the dark, just kind of seething, and I went, oh, boy, here we go. And so the upshot of it is this. Um, she, I was engaged at the time, and my mom, she started off by saying, you know, You think your dad is so perfect, and you think that your husband-to-be is so perfect. And she goes, well, let me tell you how perfect he is. And um, I I had no idea what was coming, but the upshot of it is that um, he had had an affair when they married very young. When he turned 30, he had an affair, and it went on. For a prolonged period of time, and when she found out it was uh, a specific betrayal because it was her best friend, and so at that time, you know, they had my two older brothers, their biological children already, and she told him, "Okay, you got to stop." And he said, "Okay, I'll stop." He did not stop, and when she finally had had enough, she said, "Okay, I'm I'm leaving, and I'm taking the boys, and and you know that's it." And he said, well, you can leave, but you'll never see your sons again, right? So this is, you know, late 60s in Kansas, very patriarchal. And so, and and these are all directly from her mouth, like all of these statements. She said, well, okay, I'll stay, but I get a baby girl. Hmm. So that was me.
0: You're a bargaining chip.
1: Very much so. Yeah. And, you know, she's telling me the story at 19. And in it, you know, she (laughs) manages to, to take pot shots at two people I love very much. And then also, you know, like, throw into question, you know, me like, great. So it became clear I had a job, like, you know, I arrived here at 18 months old. With a job, because in some way I was going to be the one that would make up for the disappointments of my dad and love her unconditionally and choose her and, you know, always take her side in a way that her father had not. And it all became very clear. And that was on Christmas Day, so (laughs) we can go ahead and say that that was... You
0: had another existential crisis.
1: Yeah, yeah, it kind of changed everything. It took some time before, you know, and I I believe in in being direct and being present, and so it took me time before I had an in-person conversation with my dad about it, and... I, you know, I entered into it just as, as tenderly as I could because, A, this was, you know, how many decades in the past? And then also I wanted to show, you know, just some sign that I understood. And so when I did bring it up to him, you know, he, he did admit it and, and he said, you know, I'm really sorry. And I said, well, Dad, you know, she said one of the things that was particularly hurtful and I think as a child of abuse herself, you know, she had not really progressed past that point when her abuse started, which was about eight years old. And so, you know, she said to me at the time, she goes, so just know this, nobody wanted you. Your dad didn't want you. Your brothers didn't want you. Your grandparents didn't want you. I was the only person who wanted you. And when you came here, I was the only person you didn't want. Hmm. And I remember saying that to my dad, and um, because you know my my grandmother is one of the most gentle people in the world. Like she was a really important counterpoint, you know, to my to my adopted mom. And I remember telling him that, and he said, you know, he goes, that was not true. And I just I want you to know that that was not true. But that was as much um, comfort. That was as much uh, support that I got in that. I mean, he refuted what she said, but never once was there a, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, you know, that this was, A, how she chose to share this, and B, that she chose to share it at all. I remember my, my adopted mom, one of the things that she did try to do was to connect me with other Korean adoptees, and I didn't want any of it. I really did not want to blend because I almost felt twice exceptional because there was also this implied expectation and sometimes you know a, a stated expect, expectation that I was supposed to tell them you know how grateful I am to be here and to be in in that family in particular and I I do think that that's while I can't speak for all adoptees, there's this intrinsic pressure, you know, to make everything seem just idyllic and, you know, like the adoptive parents are our saviors. ¶¶
0: I think of, you know, the natural order of things is that love flows downhill from parent to child. Mm-hmm. And I think in sort of toxic families, toxic parent-child relationships, the parent is insisting that the love flow up. Yes. You know, that you, your job is to love me, to honor me, to, you know, shine glory and awesomeness on me. Yeah. And I, mean, I get the sense that was your role to, mm-hmm. the, for the love to flow up and try to fill her up.
1: I think that's beautifully stated. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful way to look at it. And I absolutely sense that. And was able to do it to the extent that, you know, a person could, but it fundamentally was not healthy, and it wasn't sane. So that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why you know, as an adult, that's one of the reasons why I estranged myself because I'm ready to have and and do have relationships that are reciprocal, and solid, and trusting, and supportive. And there's no ulterior motive. There's nothing, you know. There's no obligation. And so it makes me sad because I, when I think about what she went through, you know, and what she was grasping for. And you know for years i I was so angry because I remembered I remembered saying to her at some point in time, and I think it was in the earlier time was I could have gone to someone good
0: mm.
1: and that that was just this raw statement that came out, and I remember being so angry, you know, yeah, none of this was my choice and then as I've gotten older and learned to heal things, um, I moved more into a place definitely of compassion for her and, and grace for both of us because it, that's just, it's a painful situation. This is how we interact as humans. And I think fundamentally, I think that I was probably the, the only one in the family that could say to her, that is not how this works which is why I'm the black sheep, you know, Mm -hmm. which is why, you know, fundamentally I don't fit into my family's dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I can also say that, you know, I think I love all of them. I really do. I love them from afar and, you know, and wish them whatever is best and healthiest for them. So it, it feels nice to have come to that point, but Yeah, it was, there was a lot of, you know, power struggle and push back and forth that I think would happen anyway, Mm -hmm. you know, but this one was also, it was fraught with a lot of other dynamics that it was never clean.
0: I think of one of the birthrights of a child um, is unconditional love. And um, ideally, that's the state of affairs, you know, some parents are too addicted or too mentally ill or too psychologically damaged or traumatized or um, otherwise distracted to give their kids unconditional love. But I do think that is <clears throat> the birthright of all of us. And I wonder if, it sounds like, at least for you, and I'm wondering if for other adoptees too, that's such a common thing to think that the love is conditional, that you, you're you kind of constantly auditioning. You were yeah. You were hired for the job as adoptee, but you know especially if there's biological kids in the mix i could see yeah. that you would always wonder am i am i being loved right. am i just being fostered or fed and clothed and clothed and housed
1: well you know I do have I do have good memories of of feeling like this is my family and I, I do think that everybody did their best and you know, I think my brothers had a different experience, perhaps because they were biological, but also because of their gender. And I do think, you know, I have two sons and so I know that the mother son relationship is different than the mother daughter relationship. And she wasn't at peace with her own Femininity, so there was always she's always given deferential treatment to to males, and so you know, I can't speak for my brothers, and I haven't spoken with them in a long time, but I think any time that, as you said, if a parent is not fundamentally coming from that place of unconditional love, you know that that toll is extracted on the children, no matter how you know how subtly or accidentally. But, yeah, I, to my knowledge, I'm the only person that's ever said to my mom, we can do better, mm-hmm. you know. And, and the love that you need, the, lo- the love that you want is absolutely possible. But you have to take your hands off of the neck, you know, like you can't extract it, you can't squeeze it out. Like you have to let it flow. And, you know, for her, this is like high-level stuff. And, uh, you know, we always spoke different. Spiritual languages, we we have energetic languages. So from that standpoint, we were completely mismatched. Mm-hmm. I think there was always this decision for me, and it came from the love that my mother, my my birth mother, gave me in that nine months. That I was okay, mm-hmm. you know, and that I was solid no matter what was happening around me. And I am thankful for that because that's something that a lot of adoptees may not have. And so while these were my challenges, I had that. There are other adoptees who have you know far different challenges and I, I do think it's fascinating how we respond to these you know these heartbreaks in our lives and I'm thankful for how I've gotten to this point. Mm-hmm. I think my first depressive episode was in my teens, right, like my mid-teens. And so, you know, chemically, all kinds of things are happening in the brain. And and it just kind of hit. And suddenly everything, there was just a lack of dynamic. And it coincided with my uh, adopted dad. He was going through his own depressive episode. So as a white male in America, it was, it was uh, earth-shattering. So it was mid-'80s and... I watched how he dealt with it, and I knew that I concurrently was going through the same experience, but all the focus was on him, you know, because, again, I wasn't really there for my own experience. I was there to kind of serve them. Um, And I I do want to tell you this memory. I remember when it got to the point it felt intolerable, and I believe I was a senior in high school, and, you know, our home was already difficult, but it was just like a, a really dark place to be. And I remember being in such need, I actually asked my mom for help. And so I came to her and I said, you know, I need to say something. And she said, what's that? And I said, I'm I'm not doing well. I, I think I'm depressed, too. And, you know, she said to me, um, I don't care. She said, I care about... One person in this household, and that is your dad. And I am not here for that. So you're going to have to figure out how to handle that. But I don't want to hear it again. Wow. Yeah. That was, <laughs> that, that was one of my rounds of EMDR.
0: Oh, <laughs> um I mean, do you have a sense, and this may be an unanswerable question, how much of your um, struggles with depression are... Know, attachment adoption related versus if you had not had that you know I guess what we're getting at is this like does it feel in endogenous inherent, or does it feel like it's coming out of your environment again, or maybe that's
1: no not- I, I that's a very valid question, and I you know I ponder the nature versus nurture piece all the time um it does it does strike me and and recently I had this thought where I went, oh, my goodness, when I was in my my birth mother's womb, like I put myself in her position, you know, and here she was completely stressed out. She had no support. She had no idea how she was going to do that. And those chemicals, like that's what I was steeped in, in utero. So whatever genetic predisposition predisposition I might have already had, that didn't help. Um I have been, uh, you know, I've experienced just regular old depression. I have uh, experienced clinical depression, like a deep, dark one, and that comes later on, um, along with anxiety. That was a fun, <laughs> oh, it was horrific uh, discovery that that came with it sometimes. And then um, dysthymia, which is basically a low-grade Depression, and so I've often felt that the dysthymia, that kind of you know melancholy state, I tend to sense that that's more genetic. And I think you know I don't know if it was just a matter of a catalyst, like something happened uh, when the attachment issues um, or the attachment wound got triggered again, that you know moved me into a deeper, more critical state. I don't know, but I, I would guess it's nature and nurture. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, interesting that your first episode corresponded with your adoptive father's mm-hmm. depression. Yeah, I mean, did that pattern continue into your adult life? That uh, depressive episodes could be linked to, you know, relationship breakups or abandonments or yeah. rejections or.
1: Absolutely, and I I think it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wait. Hold on. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, because I think, and and I'm just beginning to understand, you know, the role of the men in my life. You know, I mentioned my ex husband, he's, as I said, he's a wonderful person. And he remains, you know, one of my, he's one of my chosen family, you know, we've raised our sons together. And it's funny because I, I was the one that initiated that divorce, and, and that depression, that anxiety was not triggered then. And I do think it was largely because it was my choice. When depression has been triggered in me, it's been because of the lack of presence of someone that I loved and thought I could count on. So that first go-around was with my dad. You know, He was already lost in his own struggle. He wasn't there for me in a really difficult home. And I do think that that's why that started. And then later on, um, after my marriage was done long over, uh, I had a uh, roughly a nine-year relationship that ended really abruptly. He had his own trauma, and I think that was the only way he knew. And so when he left, yeah, I plunged into a a very black place, and I (laughs) lost all of 2014, Mm. like the whole year.
0: That was your deepest darkest time
1: yeah yeah i almost didn't make it out of that one
0: yeah i mean it makes sense too if you look back that you know your primary wound is attachment Mm -hmm. and relinquishment and um and here you have your life partner you assume and you're together for years and then it abruptly ends Mm -hmm. like you lost your your rudder your ballast your your support system your person
1: yeah and You know, I taking responsibility. You know, for for my relationship choices, I feel like I've either chosen people, um, for whom I loved, but I didn't have that fear that they would leave. But then I didn't want to stay. Like I, that was kind of, um, that was really the hardest part about accepting my part in 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 the divorce was uh, that we were very different but there was a part of me that i i kind of i felt trapped in a way it was not his fault this was mine <laughs> or i would choose people who i knew fundamentally wouldn't be there for me and those always you know carried like the strongest attractions and the biggest you know interlocking and so there was always this dangerous probability that how it ended would happen and so when it happened it just yeah like everything came out Mm -hmm. Um, And I effectively, you know, as I said, went dark. There was no dynamic, no feeling. Like I didn't, I wasn't connected to my body. I don't know what I ate. I don't know what I, if I slept. Like it was a year of black. And it was so strange, you know, because when you are in that clinical place, like I was able to still show up and run my business and take care of my people to the capacity that I could, but I wasn't present. One uh, incident in particular, and I remember it was in January of 2015, so it was basically almost, it was a little bit over a year, and we had just had a blizzard. And uh, just out of the blue, like I was asleep, I heard this voice, and it sounded like it was in the room with me. So it startled me awake, and then I realized um, what was happening. So the voice said, move. Move. Or you are not going to make it. So um, what that was, I think that was my survival instinct Mm. finally kicking in. And so, you know, it was like 4.30 in the morning. And as I said, it was a blizzard. It was right around, you know, zero, three degrees, somewhere in there. Like really cold, a lot of snow on the ground. And I just, I didn't even think about it. I felt my body. I got out of bed. And I just started layering on clothes that seemed to make sense. Like I hadn't been cold for the whole winter prior or the winter before that because of the depression. I just, I didn't feel it. So I would go out without a coat. And I, on that particular day, though, I, I had that thought of, okay, I have to cover, you know, I have to make sure that I'm, that I'm well covered. Um, and I did. So I layered up and I, you know, it's dark. There's nobody out there and the snow is still kind of falling. And I just started walking. And it was really surreal and very dreamlike. And, you know, I'm hearing the crunching of the snow, and I'm hearing my breath. And, and then I just kept trusting that voice, like, move, or you won't make it. So it probably took, I don't know, probably about a half an hour. I was out there for like an hour total, and somewhere in like at that half point, halfway point, all of a sudden I started to feel my body. Right? I could feel the heaviness in my legs with every time I lifted up my foot for the next step and felt my heart start to beat a little stronger and I felt my breath get faster and, and more you know, expansive in the chest and belly. And then I realized I was tired and I was cold. It was the best thing that I had ever felt because I had not felt those sensations in a very, very long time. And it wasn't like immediately... Things got better, right? I got back to the house after about an hour and I realized, okay, I've got like a tiny taste of what it meant to get that, that slice of light and that, you know, sliver of life back and I want it. So it it took, there were times I did not want to move. There were times that I, you know, there, there was so much, um, gravitational force at that point in time like you know inertia just kind of lets you sink back in and and I just decided no no I I'm here I'm still here and so you know to this day walking is one of the best most healing things that I do for myself my psyche just so I can be present and reconnect to that essence of life and joy and light and all that good
0: stuff Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. One of my favorite books is called Born to Run. Mm, and yeah. um, I think that's true for a lot of people. I think. Mm-hmm. But I think arguably we're all born to walk. Yeah. And I do think there's just something so primal, so biological, so wired in who we are that there's something very healing to the psyche about walking. Absolutely. About just being out in the elements and moving.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Breathing fresh air and literally not staying stuck. Uh, It's a physically empowering thing. And I remember that, you know, my first go around with EMDR and having it be explained, you know, about it being the alternate stimulation of, you know, the sides of our body. And then uh, fortunately, you know, the practitioner at the time, she said, this is how, you know, we've always been as humans, like we've been able to ambulate and walk around. And so the more stationary we get, and the more disconnected from from that we get, the more we're not incorporating, you know, all of the parts of our psyche. So walking, cycling, you know, anything that really activates both sides of the body alternately takes you into that state. Mm-hmm. So every time I go out on a walk, I'm very, very mindful that this is a time for healing. And I don't, I don't uh, bring with me any... I bring with me who I am, but I also have a, a bigger understanding of the fact I might be experiencing it, but that's, you know, obviously that's not my true state. Mm-hmm. So it's been a, a lovely gift.
0: Yeah. I'm right. thinking back, I did EMDR for trauma and therapists that think of us, you know, safe place. And, uh, I thought of running through an Aspen forest. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, I said, well, could my safe place be moving? <laughs> could mm-hmm. it? Cause I imagine the trees coming by me <laughs> right? and she said, Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Cause it was just this undulating trail and the movement and, yeah. themes that we've explored on this podcast and that i talk about a lot with my patients is how do you heal attachment and and can it be healed and uh, that's such a complicated question but i'm curious shay your personal experience mm-hmm. what has been most helpful in that process of trying to address your most profound attachment wounds um what progress have you made on that what what hasn't healed
1: Well, it's funny that you ask that, because uh, last year was a a pivotal time for me, and yet another renewal. And I spent probably the last quarter of it with that attachment uh, wound trigger, like just ready to go at any moment. And, you know, it's, it's reptilian, right? It's like back in the fight or flight. And so I felt my anxiety kind of tick up. And then I realized what was happening. And for the first time, like, I, where I'm at, I feel like I w- was able to say and to commit to paying attention and, and healing that in a really compassionate way. So I just decided, you know what? Uh, I'm going into the belly of the beast, and I'm going to try it. So I'll share with you the things that have helped me. The first thing is when we say healing... You know, we often think or fantasize that maybe it means, like, it didn't happen, right? And you won't ever experience that pain anymore. And so the first thing that I really did was just embrace the fact that these things happened to me, right? Through no fault of my own, this is my experience. I will always have that tendency and that biological response. And I think in finally accepting that. And and saying to myself, okay, instead of fighting it and being angry, like I'm at at this point of peace where I can say, okay, this is my challenge and I accept. So whenever my anxiety kicks up, because that's how it presents now, not so much in depression, but when the attachment wound especially kicks up for me, and it's weird what triggers it, I immediately meet that with acknowledgement. I speak to myself, I speak to that infant, you know, who was so heartbroken and scared and left behind. And I I say to her, okay, let's breathe, you're safe, I've got you, I'm paying attention. And by just those simple phrases alone, already I'm paying different attention and I'm not trying to escape the anxiety. And I've been able to... It's basically a commitment to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it's the most unfun thing that I've ever done. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Commitment to being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It sounds like distance running.
1: Right, (laughs) right. And it, it really is with the bigger picture in mind. And so as it happens... When the anxiety kicks in, you know, my heart speeds up, my mind's racing, and that you know just that gut feeling of like, oh my god, i'm I'm being left behind. i'm I'm not you know, I'm not loved, I'm not being seen, and I'm always going to feel this way. And that's the scariest thing about anxiety, you know, and trauma, because trauma doesn't know time. So we're back in that moment. And so to be able to say, "Okay, I've got you, we're gonna breathe, and we're gonna feel uncomfortable for a second. And that's okay. Because this is the part of you that wants to be loved. This is the part of you that wants to feel safe and feel comforted. And I'm right here. And we're doing that. And I'm proud of you.
0: to again, I know you speak just for yourself, but the whole issue of you know, adopting kids out of your ethnicity or mm-hmm. or um skin color or country or where are you on that now? I cause um again, you had your experience, but you know a lot of people. I mean, what are your do you have some just general thoughts or you know, opinions or wisdom on this idea of, you know, white family adopting a Navajo kid or a korean family adopting a a russian kid or
1: right Um, that's an excellent question thank you for asking me i have thought a lot about this and for me i think the biggest heartbreak and frustration was that at the time i was adopted i don't think the vetting process was proper i don't think it was thorough given the abuse that my mom had and the the lack of of therapy and healing she you know purposely tried to to get for herself and for her own well-being she should never have been able to have adopted a child now my understanding is that process is much more thorough now and i will say i know so many adoptive parents who are doing just they're doing what they can to meet their child no matter you know various ethnicities and and um you know, various cultural differences, and they're doing everything they can to pay attention. And it comes from a different place. So to be honest with you, I don't have an over, you know, I don't have this far-reaching statement about how I feel about it. I think the best hope that we can have is if the adoptive parents are doing this, that they are as healed or, you know, like as Paying, it, paying as much attention as they can to the things that have hurt them in their lives. first. Mm-hmm. and even concurrently, because the, the thing about raising children, as you know, like you know my children are amazing, but they they raised me. you know that's our children's jobs is they actually, you know do highlight where we, we need to grow. And so this is not a one and done. So that willingness to say okay, I can only serve from, you know, this vessel. I'm going to try to make this as healthy and as attentive as I can be for the benefit of that child. I do want to just give a shout out because I will say this, that the adoption advocacy in our country, I can see is, is growing. And it's it's really interesting. I've never really wanted to com- connect with other adoptees. This is new for me. And in opening up, um, I have a dear friend who basically created a way for me to do this, and it felt safe and it felt supportive. And as I step more into the adoptee community, one of the things that has been the most healing for me, particularly in this last year, which brought me to this healing arc that I'm on now, is uh, writing. I've always been a writer, and writing about the specific topic of being adopted is dicey at best in mainstream media because the adoptive, you know, the adoptive voice is typically silenced or, you know, like people want the trope, Mm -hmm. right? They don't, they don't really want to know about the pain and the confusion because, you know, it's difficult. So, uh, there is a wide, a writing group that I have been a part of for about a year now and everyone's adopted. Um, And not just, you know, transracial, transnational adoptees. Like there are some people who are domestic adoptees and late discovery adoptees, people who didn't find out until much later in their lives that they were adopted. And this group is really fantastic because, uh, hey, there's just this automatic, unconditional support. There's this knowing. And there is a kinship in it because it is absolutely confusing growing up in a family that is not biologically your own, even if they do their best. It's, it is a, a truly, uh, you know, life altering experience. And so being able to voice that being able to write it being able to speak the words when we read aloud in our small groups, um, has been transformational for me. So the name of that group is Adoptive voices. I'll leave you the information, so I would appreciate it if you would put that. Because I know, and it doesn't even matter so much the quality of writing. I think for many people, just the ability to express what happened in words and to be able to name it and claim it, it's incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm.
0: There's something incredibly just therapeutic and cleansing and cathartic about writing. Because right. otherwise, I think, no, why do we journal? Why do we have patients' clients journal? Mm-hmm. You know, we we have this just mess of thoughts and feelings that swirl around mm-hmm. inside of us and parts of us. And I think writing is a way to really crystallize like
1: what's, what's going on. Absolutely. And for the adoptees to say, hey, I was here. I will not be erased, you know? And I, I'm not going to fit neatly into the picture that you've created. This is my experience. And so I am uh, indebted, you know, to the community for having accepted me, like, immediately. And that's, you know, for someone that has largely lived not feeling like I fit in and make, you know, um, you know, making my own place in this world, like, it's a relief that I'm thankful that I can allow now because I didn't want that when I was growing up. I, I, I couldn't depend on anyone else. That's what, you know... My shadow belief was telling me that it wasn't safe to trust because that person was fundamentally not going to be there for me, especially if I was in need. Well, now I know that's not true, and I'm very
0: thankful. I'm regularly asked if it's possible to heal from early attachment trauma. And I would say yes, it is possible to compensate and even to eventually thrive, but this is different than quote-unquote healing. We might imagine our early parent-child bonds as the taproot of the tree of us, and early attachment trauma damages or even destroys the taproot. But then, as the tree grows, if if it gets enough nutrients and light and water, the tree can start to shoot out auxiliary roots throughout the soil and make up for that damaged primary root. I see Shay's growing connection to other adoptees as her sending out stabilizing and enriching roots throughout the soil of her life. And these attachments are helping her to grow and thrive. In the show notes of this episode, you can link to our Instagram, which is at Back From the Abyss podcast. And there's a photo there of Shay and me after we recorded. And Shay was also kind enough to leave an email connection if any of you want to reach out directly to her. We'll be back in two weeks with the second part of this adoption and attachment series. Don't miss it.